It's October 18th, 2021, and I'm back with Matt McGregor to talk about the week's acquisition headlines. First one we got, ex-Air Force tech boss eviscerates Pentagon for already losing the AI race against China, the drive. We have no competing, we have no competing fighting chance against China in 15 to 20 years, Nick Shalon told the FT. There could be more to come from Shalon, who told the newspaper he has plans to testify to Congress about the Chinese cyber threat over the coming weeks. And then the rebut to this is absolutely not true. Army CIO answers claims U.S. has already lost to China in AI from breaking defense. He, Raj Iyer, pointed to the Pentagon's tight integration with industry and our coalition partners. The U.S. and his partners share trade intelligence um, information and other things, helping both sides. I can tell you the Chinese don't have that. They're operating in a vacuum and they're relying on nefarious methods and cyber attacks. And he has an interesting prediction um, as well here. This one's from Rand. Based on the longer term economic projections, we expect China's economic capacity to level out after 2030, which could mean that whatever U.S. advantage remains, if any, at that point could persist as China's economic growth slows. So a little this was big, big deal, big news, right? <laughs> when Shailan, he left and we talked about his exit there. Um, and now he's kind of going hard again that AI that, you know, the Pentagon is going to lose AI. And it seemed like he took a lot of heat from that um, as well. And it's not really sure um, exactly what to make of it. Any thoughts? Yeah, no, I mean, I think he did take, you know, rightfully, right? When you come out, when you come out that hard, you got to, you know, make sure you can defend, defend all of your assertions. And I think, you know, I think he did uh, for the most part in showing some, some clear examples where, you know, DOD is still, still kind of lagging, whether he could have solved it in six months, you know, maybe you can you know, you can make judgments about that. Um, they are really complicated, you know, enterprise as a, as a service, enterprise IT as a service is a complicated thing, lots of moving parts, lots of stakeholders. So yeah, six months, may, may, maybe that was, maybe that was overly aggressive, but, but yeah, the fact that, uh, you know, he did come from industry, he has a unique perspective that the, a lot of other people in DOD don't have. He's actually been, been out there in the workforce. So yeah, so I think he brought a lot of value. He, he ruffled some feathers, but I also think he got leadership uh, to take another look at things. So, um, yeah, I think we'll have to probably see what the, what the after effects is. It sounds like Frank Kendall, you know, uh, took it as a constructive criticism. Maybe some other folks like this, uh, the army CIO <laughs> didn't, didn't take it quite as, uh, into it quite as kindly, but, uh, yeah, I think his point on AI is, is, is very valid in terms of, you know, no doubt China has way less barriers right to AI than we do. Um, if you look at where DOD is focused right now, a lot of it is around, you know, ethical AI, being able to trust it, being able to, you know, be responsible, you know, all these, all these different words are kind of being associated with AI, you know, China's, you know, not doing that right. They're using it for surveillance and they're pretty much getting all the data they want to get uh, within the state and being able to train their algorithms in ways that we will probably be a lot more it'll probably be a lot more complicated for, for uh, the U.S. to do. So, so definitely, I think that that was his point, is that we're not, we're not making the same level of progress because of some of our restrictions. Some of our restrictions are probably very valid. Um, some of them can probably, you know, probably be, you know, worked a little bit uh, faster, um, and we could probably do things smarter. So um, I did, one of the things that I did take for the final, final thought on that article was from General Groen about the you know, the Jake is the one thing we do have to kind of give ourselves credit for, I think, with DOD is we do have the Jake. The, the Jake is out there, right? They are um, trying to focus on combat related uh, problems. They're not they're not doing stuff in the lab. They're not uh, just playing around with algorithms, you know, with simple stuff. They're actually going to the COCOMs. They're trying to see what things can you guys not do? What things can we improve? Maybe it's going to be a lower level AI, like RPA type, you know, robotic process automation stuff. Maybe, you know, maybe there's opportunities for more advanced kind of learning stuff. So I think uh, I think the jury's still out on how how well all that will turn out. And so um, I give us I give ourselves a little bit of time. But, yeah, the Jake's definitely going to have to prove themselves and show show some real results. And then that'll build credibility, I think. And, you know, we'll, the rest of DOD will be able to, you know, kind of hop on board and learn, learn a lot of lessons. Well, with that said, uh... Next one, we got Jake Chief wants AI progress to be slow and incremental from FedScoop. The Department of Defense's Joint Artificial Intelligence Center is looking to field AI across 
the military slowly. The products can be broadly usable across combatant commands, the center's director said Friday. That mindset appears to be different from some innovative upstart organizations within the government that have emphasized the private sector's mentality of speed and agility in finding solutions to pressing challenges. And I thought that was kind of an interesting, you know, other article that came up kind of on the along with what Shaylon was saying. But I guess my mental model here is that, you know, there's some folks that want this kind of enterprise um, IT architecture to be per perfect and everyone plugged into it in a standard way such that they have, you know, all the data that can be pooled into one place and shared and then, you know, have all the algorithms run on it and like GFE or GFI, that kind of information. And then there's the other, I guess, view that, well, let's just move fast. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of these things are going to be narrow AI anyway, as they function. So, you know, the more and more you aggregate different types of data, like will there be, will AI actually be statistically useful under those like higher level strategic kinds of considerations, as opposed to, you know, identifying this picture, you know, from a drone feed. Yeah. And I think that's where, I think that's where General Rowan's kind of going is with, with his idea about, you know, um, going a little bit slower is, you know, I think they're trying to go after very targeted challenges, show what can be done, show the impact. Um, you know, a lot of it, right. We've talked about this before. A lot of it is the data piece, right. Getting access to the data, making sure the data is, you know, trustworthy, you know, they're you're not feeding in a lot of, uh, of dirty data. Um, and making sure that, you know, you're training, you know, you're training the different uh, uh, algorithms in the right way. Um, you know, you're, you're able to assess kind of, you know, especially if you're going the more cutting edge stuff where maybe you're replacing things that humans have historically done. And there's been that kind of extra level of confidence, you know, making sure you can do that testing, validate that, um, you know, it's, it's generally on track. Um, you know, we haven't really handed off major functions yet. So I think we're still pretty much in that narrow AI phase, but, uh, but yeah, no, I think that's, uh, I think that's the right, I think that's the right approach based on, based on where we're at and how we're trying to, you know, make those first strides. But uh, Let's go to uh, China watch Chinese flying wing drone launch swarming decoys at enemy warships in industry video, the drive, what we see from the AVIC video in CCTV 7's footage begins with one of apparent GJ-11 derivatives taking off from the deck of what looks to be a Type 75 amphibious assault ship. The video then moves to show uh, a flight of four of these UCAV unmanned combat aerial vehicles deploying air launch decoys. The general exterior shape of the decoys is similar to that of Raytheon's ADM-160 miniature air launch decoy or MATL series, which you can read about here. MATLs are essentially small cruise missiles that have electronic warfare suites in lieu of traditional warheads, which, depending on the exact variant, allow them to jam enemy radars or attempt to fool their operators into believing that large groups of aircraft or missiles are coming at them from various directions. So this one, I don't know if you, you looked at the video, it looked all pretty notional as well. Um, they, I don't think they had like, you know, a, a functioning version or any of that stuff, but they were showing a concept of, you know, some of these drones kind of coming at some warships and deploying these, uh, you know, air launch decoys, which then looked like more fighter jets and stuff like that. So it was pretty interesting, but, um, uh, again, you know, China is moving out on a number of interesting fronts as well and experimenting. So, um, I guess that's the worry, but then. How much of that is real is always the question that's hard for me to answer. Yeah, I mean, we've, um, I've, I was always a little bit frustrated that, that the DOD wasn't more all in on the mods. Like we always kind of, we've always bought some every year. There's kind of a steady state um, production. Maybe they've went, you know, more out on, on it, but it was always kind of viewed as like um, a little bit of a peripheral capability. Like, yeah, we'll throw some of these out there to, Kind of take some of the initial initial missiles in the you know AT A two AD environment where you you know you know you got some got some stuff coming at you you know we'll throw some of these out there like that's kind of part of the concept um, of operations but I, I always thought they should have gone more into it more more in there and they like had swarms and you know just tons of these things out there because they really are just drones with different electronics kind of embedded into them there's like the 
Mall J is sort of the jammer, but there's other other malls, um, and you can you can really put different sensor suites in them. So yeah, I, I think uh, you know it makes sense. China may have just taken that concept of operations from just seeing you know seeing what we do, uh, studying some of our some of the stuff that we have online where we talk about these things, and so you know maybe they're playing around with it, but. They definitely are deeper in the drone space. I think we've seen that just, you know, on multiple fronts. They, um, they're, they're kind of definitely putting a lot of eggs in the drone basket. So I think we can expect to see some, probably some novel, novel uses, but man, it's just a cheap, uh, effective way of, of, of creating havoc for, for any adversary. So it, it kind of makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And thanks for correcting me there. You said the mold. I was, I said metal, which I guess is the, uh, the F-35's data link, right? But <laughs> uh, so the next one we got staying with the Chinese drones, Chinese testing experimental armed drone ships at secret naval base from USNI News. China is testing a large uncrewed surface vessels, USVs, according to satellite photos provided to USNI News from Maxar. Uh, the small 50 foot long craft has been destroyed as a mini destroyer because it's ambitious weapons and sensor fit. With a remote weapons station, it is intended to be armed with a small vertical launch system for surface-to-air missiles and two lightweight torpedo tubes. Sensors include phase array radars, electro-optical electro devices, and sonar. And the new unreported USV has similar overall fit to this one that we just described. And then there's a third USV that is larger, um, approximately 70 feet. So again, you know, the Chinese are experimenting in a number of ways, and so is the U.S. Navy. We have, it seems like the Navy has a, a number of different unmanned vessels, both underwater and, um, you know, surface. But uh, this one was fairly interesting. They're moving pretty fast, and it looks like they've actually armed them. I think there's a moratorium on the Navy actually having vertical launch cells on a, on a drone ship. So maybe there's another instance of them the Chinese being more, you know, risk-taking in, in weaponizing some of these uh, unmanned or, or autonomous uh, systems. It just makes a ton of sense for them to have these type of, um, these type of vessels and to have, you know, things where they can basically extend their radar range, um, be able to do targeting, because, you know, so, some of that is actually challenging from, you know, from long distances. Sometimes you can detect certain things, but if there's some low observable kind of aspects, uh, it can be kind of tough to actually target some some vessels or some aircraft. So yeah, it kind of makes sense for them to start to arm some of these basically drone ships and you know send them out there with uh, phase phase array radars and yeah electro optical devices and sonar for sub detection and yeah then also yeah if they're sticking the small vertical launch systems on there, um, yeah having some surface to air missiles and torpedoes like yeah you can really see how the application of these could be pretty useful for them to extend. Uh, the, the, their area of denial. So, so it makes a lot of sense. I, I actually did a tiny bit of research into like the PT boats from World War II. I was just kind of uh, kind of curious to see how effective they were. And I think by all accounts, they were they were pretty effective. They um, they kind of the the Japanese called them devil boats, and they basically were uh, they disrupted a lot of uh, a lot of operations, uh, especially like uh, for logistics traffic and stuff like that, or you know the trans transferring uh, cargo and stuff they were, uh, I guess, really um, problematic to the Japanese. So, yeah. So, you know, it kind of makes sense. We need to get more of these out there with different things on them. And yeah, hopefully we'll start testing, testing out the vertical launch stuff on ours here uh, soon so we can perfect that. But yeah. Next one we got Congress allows DOD to shift $3 billion in spending from ins inside defense. Congress has granted the Department of Defense permission to reprogram $3 billion in spending across a variety of accounts. The DOD had wanted to reprogram $4.4 billion, according to a new document from the Pentagon's Comptroller's Office. The 97-page omnibus reprogramming was submitted to Congress on June 16th, re requesting permission to shift funds appropriated for fiscal year 2021, 20, and 19. I thought this one was interesting, um, not just because it took so long, right? <laughs> Here we are, it's October 18th, and this... Uh, omnibus reprogramming was submitted June 16th. And that means a lot of those program, you know, justifications and requests came up much earlier than that. Um, and they got 3 billion out of 4.4 billion, you know, under total base budget of 7, 
hundred plus billion, right? So, uh, you know, here's some of the pain, but at least something, you know, some reprogramming has happened, but it's, it seems to be a very painful process to, to move money to higher priorities, right? Yeah, I've done a number of these packages and honestly, that timeline is, is, is fairly standard. Sometimes you'll get some stuff in September, but basically you're waiting on all four committees. If there's any Intel stuff in there, you also have to have the Intel committees, but you're, you're basically waiting on all four committees to, to make a verdict on both uh, sources and requirements. And so that's where it kind of gets tricky because uh, you, you'll see one, one committee will come out and say, you know, sometimes they'll defer, but a deferral is essentially a denial. And then you're like, well, there goes all my requirements. So even if they approve the requirements, sometimes you, if you don't have the sources to go along with it, and clearly here, they, they lost 1.4 billion. So, so yeah, they have, they're going to have to, they're going to have to rebalance a lot of that. And so, um, so it is tricky. It's a, it's a very time intensive process. Part of the problem is these omnibuses, like it shows here, the 97 pages are very long and it, it can be one of those things where, you know, the congressional staffers get this thing and they just know it's going to be a bear. And so I think they, they do all the other priorities they have and then they, then they, you know, get to it when they can. And yep, not very timely, very painful and never turns out exactly how, how the Air Force or the DOD wants it. I did one thing, Eric, though, that I did, I looked, I actually looked through the package and uh, one thing that stuck out at me was there were actually funds requested by AFWorks uh, about $5 million for non-pay non support for innovation hubs at multiple locations. Um, the AFWorks program personnel and resources were directed to be moved from headquarters Air Force to the AFRL to support innovation labs. This reprogramming action realigns funds for proper execution. So yeah, essentially there were funds there to get up to stand up these innovation labs uh, or hubs. And uh, I, I couldn't quite tell the way that they marked things if this one was moved, was moved around, was balanced by Comptroller, where it was like a lower priority and Comptroller uh, just zeroed it out and moved the money or used the money for something else, or if it was denied by the Senate because there was one above that was denied by the Senate. But either way, AFWorks isn't getting any of their money, which I thought was really, um, really too bad because it sounds like this was a pretty good idea for these innovation hubs and to, um, you know, get AFRL to get more, more in that game. So I don't know the whole story there, but yeah, I did pick up on that. I thought that was interesting. Next one, we got Pentagon R&D czar looking for money for 32 tech projects breaking defense. Heidi Shu's office has briefed Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks on 32 proposed experimentation areas that hold promise of the biggest payoffs. If success in obtaining funds in FY21, the Pentagon would hold experiment events at least once a year. Though Shu added that she would like to conduct two sprints annually. While Congress has yet to approve F an FY22 appropriation bill, the Pentagon's proposed budget did not request seed money to start the experimentation campaign. If Pentagon leadership approves Shu's edit, uh, effort, the department will have to work with capital free up funding in the FY22 budget. So, you know, this is, I guess, what happens all the time, right? We're, we're turning through. <laughs> leadership in the department and so we have a new you know usd r e um in heidi Shu, and of course she wants to go out and do and do big things um and get started probably fast but uh, of course how do you get the budget to go do any of that stuff right so now now they're here trying to affect the fy22 budget late late in the cycle probably to go get this money and then you know see if they can work it in into the future to do these types of experiments but you know, here's just some more budget problems, right? Like, um, you know, moving effectively in research and development requires having some funds available to do these things that were disruptive or were not foreseen multiple years in the past. And, you know, a lot of these new leadership positions, they almost find themselves ineffectual because they don't like, they find themselves at an undersecretary position, but then, you know, how do they, so much is already in motion how do they affect themselves? And, you know, here she is actually, you know, trying to get it done, but I'm sure there's going to be a lot of bureaucratic wrangling and in, in how that actually works out and where does it come out and who's the winners, who's the losers. Yeah. These things always sound like a good idea to me, you know, or to, you know, to people when they're proposed, you know, yeah. How can you argue with doing, you know, some experiment uh, events or, you know, sprints to get after some capability gaps. Um, I do kind of cringe a little bit though, just by 
you know, R&E definitely has a role in this. They're supposed to be the, you know, chief technology officer and work to kind of modernize some of the areas. But, you know, they, there are a lot of funds out there, right? Like we know this, there's going to be the Raider Fund. So there's that. There's, there's the JCTD Fund for the joint technology demonstrators. Um, if DOD would ask for it, there probably would be money for the Rapid Innovation Fund. <laughs> um, you know, there's, uh, there's, there are these different funds out there that, I, you know, I think r &E has resources, Cyber Money, right? They, they can do some stuff with Cyber too. Uh, they, so I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit kind of curious about. Well, I, I don't know, like, okay, the Raider Fund is small. And I think we talked about this last time. They have hundreds or something. Of, yeah. yeah, they have something like that, but they have many hundreds of applications already sure. yeah. um, being put in there. So these guys are late in that cycle. The Riff, of, of course, that's gone. That, that doesn't count um cyber is kind of hard to work that stuff through anyway and then you have to compete it and what's your p win of actually I, I wonder you know it's a good question of like do they have specific technologies and companies in mind or or is it like a general like types of programs but you know i see this as like a prop well i see it as a problem that she can't like find any money to squeeze it into right like where are you gonna squeeze that new thing yeah, but she like she would have, I guess my point is she would have done all those things. I'm sure staff looked at every possible funding avenue before doing what they're doing now, which is probably the most disruptive of the, of the avenues, right? No, you're probably right. Um, I just, I still go back to though, right. The, the Arnie does have some funds and yeah, you're right. That maybe this, for this particular vision, the, those funds were not, not suitable or not uh, timely. Um, but, it, but she does talk, talk about, you know, ameliorating a des designated capability gap. And my question would be is, well, what are the services doing for that? And mm -hmm. I argue that if they're doing nothing, if there's a clear capability gap and they're doing nothing to address it, um, well, there are, you know, there are avenues to, <laughs> to adjudicate that, right? I mean, issue teams, uh, you know, PBR is essentially designed basically to tell services to do stuff that, you know, DAD thinks they're doing wrong. So, you know, do we need RE? Is this the role for RE is to basically step in and, uh, you know, go after capability gaps? Um, or should this services be doing that? Or, or you know, just, I, you know, understanding the vision of this in the context of all the other stuff going on, I think is important. So I didn't quite understand this. Two sprints annually, you know, we're doing a lot of exercises. There's tons of prototyping, there's tons of, you know, uh, tons of RD, ST money being, being expended. So why can't we use all that? And uh, if the services are ignoring this, why aren't we, you know, directing them to do do other things? So, yeah, just understanding the context of this, I think, is important because just doing stuff for the sake of doing it uh, doesn't always, you know, needs to have a plan, needs to get into a program, you know, an active program needs to get fielded, and all that stuff. And so you need that whole chain to 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 be effective. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's you know one of the benefits and the problems of the current system it's like okay i think most of the debate will actually go to what you just said it's like okay you have 32 experimentation areas what are these 32 areas are they duplicative of what the services are already doing why are you doing this uh let me second guess you to the nth degree but it's just like look this person has been given like a mandate i in my view almost right like you're coming in you're the new usd r e um shouldn't there be some ability to just say yes, go forth and do great. Like, <laughs> no, maybe, maybe we don't believe in people that much anymore, but anyway, that's my little bias. Well, you know, one of the things I do, I actually do feel really bad for Arnie because, you know, before 2016, when the uh, provision was passed to basically delegate everything down to the services, um, Arnie did have a much bigger role in, in how TMRR, you know, tech, uh, technology maturation risk reduction um, phases occurred. And they had they just had a little bit more I feel like control uh, or insight into what the military was or the services were doing, and so I do feel a little bit bad for them because everything was delegated down except for like nine programs. They still do some metros and stuff, but it's um, you know it's case by case. They don't really have the insight that they used to or the or the clout. So I do feel bad because like you said, they're given this mandate, but then you know, the services are kind of like, leave us alone. <laughs> yeah. Stewart. It's also not clear. Like, are these 32 experimentation <laughs> areas like straight up in USD R&E and under her cognizance? Or is it like stuff that's going to be farmed out to the services or I don't know. 
there's definitely overlap. I mean, the services are some of this yeah. stuff, like things like we've talked about microelectronics and cyber, and, you know, there's definitely overlap. Um, but I still, I still don't have a clear vision on like how, how they're coordinating, you know, across all the services for that, to make sure that all the different things are being addressed or the resources are going in the high, high, highest probability areas with some risk, you know, hedging or something like, yeah, I don't understand. I don't really well, isn't shouldn't that be integrated into like isn't that already integrated into our decisions on the 32 areas right like I assume that the best information is probably with them right you can go out and send some you know third party neutral experts and you know wait a few years until they get super smart on what's going on and then tell us what to do but you know if information is not there then it seems like we should almost have a bias towards action and then root those things out that we see, you know, like over time. Um, but I don't know. Well, I think it's, a, did, it's a hard one, right? I, I think, well, I think a lot of their success or, um, you know, really hinges on having the right people, the right technology leads. And, and right. you know, I think they, they really did have some really good people in there like Mark Lewis you know, I think he was behind the scenes was doing a lot for hypersonics uh, to help the different services and MBA and everybody, you know, kind of get after the things that were critical and identifying where the risks were and stuff. So, you know, I think, I think Mark was probably, you know, a critical linchpin and he's left now, but um, you know, I think it is getting the right people in those areas who, who understand the technology space so well, have the connections across the community already, have a lot of credibility. I think, I think a lot of it probably does hinge on and on that kind of. Um, well, what, I guess what's the proper role of the Office of the Secretary of Defense? I mean, if we're in a period of delegation, then is it not the case that the services should be administering their own programs? But <clears throat> like, because we don't have any, you know, munitions or R&D boards or any of these existing structures for coordination, like, isn't it R&D's job to kind of just do that, right? Like, okay, I'm not going to stop you from doing something, I'm good. I want to know everything that you're doing and then I can, you know, help, you know, consolidate or rationalize or, you know, push for interoperability where required, right? Like that seems to be like, how much should R&E actually be doing the research versus just helping the services coordinate and understand what everyone's doing and being kind of like this convening ground of, of information and um, I guess integration. Yeah, I, I lean towards that ladder of, of them being the, you know, having insight across the services, uh, finding those gaps and seams and saying, hey, we need to address these, um, being an enabler, you know, connecting the dots on things, uh, maybe providing money if the services aren't asking for the right, right amounts, just maybe redirecting money in certain areas. So I, I, do, I think they do have a really important role. I am not clear that they have the insight that they want. Um, I think the services, I think there's some level of coordination, but are they completely, you know, open about it all? I don't know. I think the, uh, the data picture there is still, you know, still unclear with how the different efforts are going on and how they're tracked and how they're communicated. Uh, so, so yeah, Arnie may not have all the information that they want, but, but they definitely, they definitely should have that picture. I think, I think that is, I think that is the role, like you said. Well, stick with the RE area. Um, and you know, Heidi Schuh's deputy is being nominated. And so that's what this is about. Key DOD tech nominee would check for undue bias towards prime contractors from in inside defense. David Honey, nominee for deputy USD RE, told the SASC, having greater participation as a prime contractor by new entrants from the commercial world could significantly increase marketplace competition and benefit the department. If confirmed, I will review our prototyping strategy and practices to ensure that there is no undue bias towards traditional prime contractors or systems integrators, and that qualified commercial companies, both small and large, are considered for these functions. So that's, you know, an interesting kind of, he said that I'm not really sure how he'll go about and do that, <laughs> you know, review the strategy and practices that there's no undue bias. I mean, it seems like the bias is kind of just like, baked into the whole system right uh from irad itself to the incumbency advantages and marketing and sales you know advantages that they have um the inside scoop on requirements and ahead of the rfps 
Uh, it's it's kind of not clear how to how to solve that, but you know, it's interesting that he he said it. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I, I'm kind of glad. I think it's I think it's worth throwing on the table because, like you said, we do we do have a bias. Um, I mean, I think it's understandable, right? It's a little bit of human nature. I think some people make it out to be to malign it as some kind of you know um, you know dark force at work. But I mean, I think in general, it's like people. People like to turn to those entities they know, even if those entities maybe haven't always been successful or have had a lot of, you know, a lot of issues. They're at least like a known entity. Um, and they have and personal relationships too, right? A lot of them right. actually like sit with yeah. the contractors and they like, they know their families, their names or whatever it is, right? Yeah, it's maybe in some cases, but I don't even think it's so much like the personal relationships. There might be a little bit of that, but it's more of a like, you know, like, you know, if you, if you give them, if you throw an RFP over, they're going to come back with something that can pass muster. You can get it through all the wickets and you can award something. Um, <laughs> and no one's going to get fired for, uh, <laughs> for, for choosing IBM. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're not gonna have a Jedi situation. Um, you know, so yeah, there's, I think there is a comfort level there and it's probably, it's probably an unhealthy comfort level because we, we probably are not, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a given. We're not giving commercial companies enough opportunities. And part of it is probably, I think one study he could do that would probably be an easy kill would be to say, let's look at all the RFPs that were put, that were submitted for, for the prototyping efforts. What do those RFP looks like? RFPs look like? How many requirements did we impose on them that only, you know, large kind of defense oriented contractors could, could meet? Um, you know, that would automatically make commercial companies go, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to, you know, <laughs> I don't know how to do that, you know, develop uh, some training system in this particular format, these seed drills. And um, so, yeah, I think that would be a value um, to say, where are the hurdles? Talk to the commercial companies. So I think there is actually some really good he can do here. Um, I think it is going to become, it's going to be really hard to kind of, you know, pinpoint exactly the bias. Uh, I think it'll probably have to come out in the documentation. But there, there was um, in that same article, though, there was one other thing that, that I still kind of keep going back to. Uh, it was this is from Heidi Shu. She, she was talking about like an example of prior transition successes. And she was saying the prime contractor worked closely with the cyber program office, established an industry day with small companies. The prime contractor then stated the technical challenges that they have, requested ideas from small companies. The prime then worked with the small companies on creating the cyber phase one contract, then the phase two. Subsequently, that technology was transitioned into a program of record with the cyber program offices. So I, I still go, kind of go back to that idea because I do think these commercial companies, they don't necessarily know how to navigate all of the, you know, contracting and process of, of DOD and having a prime to kind of be there as a, there is a mentor, mentee, protege program, but it's, I think it's, I think it's underutilized significantly and probably isn't the right structure, but I do think more teaming arrangements um, that allow them to both kind of give their expertise and benefit. I still think there's, there's a ton of potential there. So I hope that Heidi, based on this example here, I hope that they'll already will also take a focus on that. It's talking about like, okay, how can we do more of this? Like, especially in the prototype phase, teaming with the prime and some of these really innovative, smaller commercial companies, um, so yeah, so this is good. I think it, I think this is great. You don't hear this said a lot. So I think it's a good thing that he put it on the table. Yeah. It seems like the, the ultimate problem is going to be something he has no influence over, or she has no influence over for he in Heidi's case, which is like what programs get approved, <laughs> right. And how many programs. And it seems like the biggest problem for new entrants is that there aren't many opportunities straight up, right? We, we kind of have like the, we build one of these class of systems once every decade. Um, so there's not many of them. And then when they do come around, they're so big and they kind of take so long that there's that, that incumbency advantage and that ability to carry the overhead and do the marketing and all that kind of stuff really shines through. So it's, you know, it's like, where's that? gonna where's that money coming from you know is are the primes in the middle a good one you know an upcoming podcast for the next one no no spoilers but you know his recommendation was you know 50 percent of all irad or above a certain threshold should actually go towards phase three transitions um for cyber uh from the prime so that they can that almost gets you over that valley of death so if there's 
you know, several billion dollars of total IRAD, you know, you can kind of divert a good bit of that money towards for phase three and carry those along until money gets freed up. But I, th I thought that was an interesting uh, idea there. And something that's probably within RNE's purview, right? I'm not sure they can direct, right? There, there's a lot of restrictions on directing. I read, um, I don't know, that that does sound like a challenging proposal, even though I like the philosophy of it. But, but one thing, I mean, you know, um, you know, I think, I think like the teaming, the teaming thing is, you know, is, was one piece of it, but just making it so, I mean, I like your idea. Basically, I, I think I'm kind of still going back to your idea about hedging is like, even if you are, even if there is a contract that's going to a normal prime for, like you said, they're, they got the, they got the big EMDU contract. Well, let's do the hedge, you know, let's, let's take, let's take 10% of the money that was planned. Yes, that is a, that is a chunk of money that's going to have to come out of the budget. It, you know, everyone's going to be willing to kind of pony that up. But <laughs> well, it's already there, right? It's in the, it's in the risk reserve. Just be like, screw it. <laughs> this is our risk reserve, right? Like I'm funding well, you the 70th percentile and that, that extra 20th percentile is, is, is for this guy. <laughs> oh no, no. Cost estimates are like 55%. But anyway, PMs I, yeah, I'm just saying, no. but yeah. <laughs> who, who even does the, the, the 50 percentile anymore? We just rely on the point estimates. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't know if PMs would agree that there's a lot of risk money there, but yeah, maybe you're right. You know, wherever that money needs to come from, you know, if it's a really important program, I, I really like your idea about, I hope you write a paper on it, about hedging, you know, you know, let's put 10, 10% of that towards, towards a hedge. And then, you know, that does bring some of these commercial companies out of the woodwork maybe it brings the losing prime maybe the prime that didn't get the contract you know maybe they uh maybe that presents an opportunity for them to to do some teaming and say okay yeah we don't i don't have as much money so i can't do my whole big thing but let me let me try to come up with something novel but uh yeah yeah there's definitely definitely some i guess my my last my last thought on that is that we we often say stuff like, or you hear government people say like, oh, we'd love to like industry to team in this way or that way. Like, man, why don't they get together in these types of ways? Well, they already have the ability to do that. What are the incentives for them to team in some new and novel way um, that they wouldn't have been doing today? Right. Um, there's some kind of like market efficiency. Like we want them to, to team into like, but that's not their incentive to do it, or they, they each have their own business incentives. And so it just doesn't happen. So I just don't understand where the, the incentive kind of comes from. I guess in the IRAD case, it's like, I'm just going to force you to spend your IRAD in a certain way. Um, I don't necessarily like that either, but um, well, I think that's the problem. Point about the, the contract has to be, the incentives do have to be there, right? If you if, if every RFP is basically like a firm fixed price um, where the requirements are nailed down, there's no flexibility, there's no alternative proposals, there's, you know, no desire for, for any innovation. Uh, maybe you're not, you know, you're not using a CSO when you, when you could, you know, if, yeah, if, if you're doing it the old school way, the incentives are not going to be there. But I think if you start to write the RFPs in, you know, more open ways, hold competitions do you know do some challenge base do some uh, uh you, you know some 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 competitions some some fly off you know quote unquote fly offs um if you can do some of those types of things then you know maybe you start to build the incentive base where they go we need some novel ideas and our shops you know are still kind of thinking about the current products and we we need to get some other brain power in here and i think maybe that's where maybe the incentives could come from but no, I hear you. You're right. The incentives have to be there. It seems like you just have to break those things down into more smaller manageable pieces that the smalls and the non-traditionals can participate and then just award it to them, right? And then if they start actually excelling, then they create their own demand rather than um, you know, just hoping business will play nicely together for the benefit of government without you know, the incentives in sight. Anyway, uh, that's a hard one. We'll move on from there. U.S. Army precision strike missile breaks distance record in flight test from Defense News. The company did not disclose the distance of the PRSM traveled in its flight test, but the goal of this test was to see exactly how far the missile can travel beyond its previous 
set requirement of 499 kilometers. The original intent was to reach a maximum of 499 kilometers, but America's 2019 withdrawal from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty with Russia has allowed the U.S. Army to develop the missile to fly farther. The INF Treaty proposed or prevented the development of missiles within the ranges of 499 and 5,000 kilometers. The missile broke the range record in May, reaching more than 400 kilometers. Um, and shorter distances can actually be more difficult to execute because the missile must go up and then come down quicker. Uh, so they were, the Army has been uh, successfully, I guess, testing or doing some kinds of flight tests. And Thurgood, as uh, one of the generals there over in the Army, kind of head, heading up the rapid acquisition efforts, has been kind of touting this as, you know, we're, we're getting back to how we used to do things in the 1950s and stuff like that. And he said, um, actually, I think this is this system is now with uh, PEO missiles and space, which is being transitioned there from the rapid capabilities and critical technologies office. So here's another one of those instances of kind of like, you know, a rapid capabilities office starting something and then transitioning it off to a, to a more, you know, state and true PEO office. Now, I'm wondering to what degree that's just going to be the straight up model. Do PEOs like have not really have any kind of like responsibility for these newer types of technologies. They're just kind of, they're almost like at, you know, um, administrative, more administrative, more contracting of things that exist rather than, you know, doing the new things, but interesting all over. You know, I think, I think this one's a little bit novel um, in that the army rapid capabilities, critical technologies offices, you know, leading the, leading the charge for the kind of prototyping piece of it. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know exactly that relationship, but it does, at least it's a good sign that the PEOs are, you know, connected. <laughs> it sounds like they have the transition team stood up and all that stuff. So, um, so good, good way to do it. Um, interesting. Uh, generally this, this PRSM is kind of interesting to me. I thought that was a good point about the fact that they're touting, being able to reach, uh, you know, further out, even though that's that's potentially the, the least challenging piece, and that most of the cha- most of the reason why we haven't been doing that today is just from the the INF treaty. So, kind of kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, that they, you know, the they're 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 trying to get an early operational capability production. I thought that was interesting. Um, that that's already been awarded, and they're trying to get that in by 2023, and then they'll start spiraling in kind of new technology and enhanced seeker. Um, more capabilities, increased lethality and extended range. And, uh, and that the priority, this was the key one I took away, the priority for PS, PRSM in the near term is to pursue a maritime ship killing capability. So uh, that was kind of interesting. I looked at some of the missiles that, that are currently out there and the Marine Corps actually does use LRASM. Uh, and I think, I think they may actually start looking at the PRSM too. And the Elverasm goes about like 300 miles, but it's about three to four million a pop. The PRSM, if the you know if the projections are correct, is going to go three to 500 miles and be one to two million a pop. So, yeah, it could be a really really good augmentation to the Elverasm, which has some some unique characteristics to it um, for for really kind of uh, denying you know South China Sea that whole area. Uh, you know, if ships get too, too close to some of the land-based uh, installations, they can, you know, really do some damage. So, yeah, pretty pretty interesting that they're, they're moving on this quick. So this is going to be something something we're going to see in the next couple of years, not uh, not 10 years. Yeah. Is is this, does this one have any commonality with Navy stuff or is this a, a full-up Army missile? I think I think it is, right? Yeah, it's the Atacams. Uh, I think it's uh, connected with the Atacams. That's right. That's yeah. right. All right, cool. So the next one we got comparing Tesla's spending on R&D and marketing per car to other autom- automakers uh, from the visual capitalist. The punchline here is actually that Tesla spent $2.9 billion on R&D and $0 on sales and marketing in 2020 compared to Ford, Toyota, GM, and Chrysler, which together spent $3.9 billion on R&D and nearly $2 billion on sales and marketing. While capital allocation is vital, one factor that differentiates Tesla from the rest is Elon Musk himself with over 60 million followers on Twitter, is wild popularity has no doubt aided in Tesla's brand recognition. Uh, but I just thought this was an interesting kind of 
and maybe this one should have followed up on the traditional versus non-traditional, but uh, I, I guess that kind of difference in stance that Tesla is just putting a ton of money into R&D, you know, more than half, like three quarters of what those four companies combined are doing and not spending anything on 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 sales and marketing of course in an apartment of defense everything's sales and marketing right like you spend zero on sales and marketing you're just literally going to get zero because that's impossible right but um it, i think it's kind of showing this kind of broader shift in the industry towards i mean of course sales and marketing is always going to be big especially for SaaS type companies but for kind of like deep tech companies they probably don't need sales and marketing so much. I mean, they're they're the kind of interesting things that they do are almost um, the marketing in of themselves. Yeah, it's funny uh, with regards to like uh, the marketing for the defense companies. I, I've always wondered about that. I, I've never seen a study that shows like the effectiveness or not. But you know, having worked at the Pentagon for years, you see, you go to like this the metro and you see, you know, billboards of all the different weapon systems and. It's always a little bit funny to me because most of the source selections and RFP development for those things are being done, you know, miles away or, you know, states away uh, by people that don't actually see those billboards um, or if they do, they see them maybe once or something. So I don't know. I've always been, I've always wondered if the marketing actually works on the defense programs, but. <laughs> well, I um, guess I, I was thinking of more broader <laughs> marketing, right? Because they have tons of BD guys or like sales. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, like yeah, those yeah, types of guys that are like embedded everywhere throughout all the programs. It's just like, yeah. And, but they're not called that. Like some of it's under bid and proposal and some of it's just under program management. It's your job to kind of gen up the business, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. I see what you're saying. That, that probably that probably is true but in general like for this one I, you have to feel a little bit uh the Chrysler numbers were a little bit surprising Chrysler's really uh they must they must have to spend a lot of money to sell cars they were like they were like way ahead of their uh, competitors there but <laughs> you have to feel for them competing with Tesla and you know all Elon Musk has to do is send a tweet and Bitcoin drops like 30 percent you know he just has such market dominance in his uh, social media presence so yeah gotta 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 feel for, <laughs> for the yeah but the market dominance <laughs> in his social media was almost because he was successful at a lot of deep tech type things true right true. Yeah. so yeah. it was a result of successful research and development that he didn't need the sales and marketing to a degree yeah i think he has a level of trust with the consumer just because of his focus like people know he's a tech guy People, yeah, like you said, they, they've seen some of his successes and they trust that, you know, what he's doing is going to be, um, it's going to work out. So, whereas, yeah, if you're, if you're trying to debate about buying a Ford or a Chrysler or GM, you're, you know, maybe you're comparing some specs here and there, but you're not going to that trust factor. It's more of, yeah, it's more of just maybe your past experience or, or marketing. <laughs> I guess that shows some of the. The, the need for interpersonal trust throughout the system that we have. Cause it's like Kelly Johnson and skunk works didn't have to spend any money on like BD and like BNP as well. Right. Like they just, just send Kelly Johnson out with the spec, you know, the next day they got a contract. <laughs> well, this is, I mean, I think this is what we're going to, we're going to talk about in another article, maybe, or if we're going to get to the, uh, oops, Kratos. Yeah. Whitney? yeah. Yeah. Well, Kratos, the Kratos one, I think. Oh, right. Do you think a little bit like the the the, um, the model for like the original stealth and uh, B uh, or the um, um, yeah F one seventeen and the uh, SR seventy one and stuff? I think a lot of that you know that trust. I think that's that's a little bit where Kratos is coming in because right like the old the old way of doing business is some, a lot of the companies if they knew there was some type of need they they would actually get after and I think that's a little bit where Elon Musk has benefited is. He hasn't necessarily waited for the market to have a have a need. He's actually sort of shown what's possible and kind of built that need, right? Like who even knew they needed a, you know, driving car, you know, self-driving car until he started showing it was possible and, you know, showing like, you know, that, you know, you can actually get, you know, really good distance with an electric car and that you actually can have a, a plug-in at your house or, you know, near your area and it can be done fast. Like, you know, I think he broke down a lot of those barriers. And I think that's a little bit where we, if we talk about the Kratos one, a little where they're doing too, right? Is they're they're kind of stepping out and showing, hey, here's how this could work. You know, we're we're, we're not just uh, 
yeah, we're, we're actually putting our putting our money where our mouth is, where, you know, I think the other, the typical defense model is to wait for some clearly articulated need with specs and, you know, detailed sort of a rundown of everything that's needed. And then, you know, then the process begins and maybe do a little bit of IRAD, but, you know, in general, there's kind of like that delay where you're waiting. So, yeah, that's, that's a, I feel like that's a big problem where it's like, no, no engineer on your, in your business really needs to believe in it. Right. It's like, it's not whatever came out of the government requirement specs is like, well, by God, it, like, that's what we got to do. Right. Like, and, and we'll do the best within that constraint that we can, as opposed to, um, you know, like, so coming up with it, like what you really believe in and, and pursuing it, even if others disagree with you. And it almost feels a little bit like the political thing where people say like, you know, politicians today, they don't like have their own ideas or actually talk about policy anymore. Right. They just kind of follow whatever the uh, the polls tell them to do. And it's like that almost potentially leads you to a very suboptimal outcome. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I'm a little bit, you know what I'm a little bit worried about too. I mean, I think Frank Kendall, when he uh, spoke at the uh, AFA. Yeah, if a uh, conference, uh, he, you know, talking about hypersonics, like reading all these hypersonic programs and just how much money, how much these things are going to cost, like you do almost start to wonder, is it like, are we getting into a little bit of a group think where it's just like hypersonics are going to solve the day for all for everything? And like, should we be investing this billions and billions of dollars into something completely novel, something unexpected, you know, give us the element of surprise? you know, China's going to be expecting the hypersonics. They're going to come up with countermeasures. Should we be, should we be going after something else? It does make me, does make me wonder a little bit if, um, you know, how easy it is to fall into kind of the group think, or maybe it's just the right way to go. But I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. How much, do you know how much they, the government was going to spend on, on hypersonics? My, my understanding was that what was like, it was in the low billions. It's not like huge billions. Well, it's not for the R and D. I don't think is. Well, you're saying when they get to production, this could be big. Well, it's still it's still big for the R and D. Um, I think some of that is slow, like some some initial production runs. But I mean, if you looked at the initial Hacksaw error program, I mean, it was. Um, I think it was close to a billion. It was at least like you know seven hundred, eight hundred billion, eight hundred million. So you know, decent amount for R and D, but I think the real money is going to come in the production where, you know, if these things are 10 million a pop or something, um, if we're not able to get the price point down to a reasonable level, you know, are we just buying tons of exotic weapons? And is that ultimately going to achieve the effects that we want? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I think everybody thinks it is, but in the budget brief here, 6.6 billion to develop and field multi-service, multi-domain, long range fires. Which includes the hypersonics, it looks like, but then also other things like JASM. Um, so, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I guess, you know, it's one of those things. It's like, what's the literal requirement? I guess you'll find out a little bit later, right? You kind of want the option and you need like a little bit of, you know, inefficiency and excess and duplication in the early years to kind of get to something that you can experiment with and understand what you need. I guess one of the issues is like, you know, how big is opportunity and how big is the, the cost of that? Um, like, the, like what are the other priorities that you could be going towards, if not that? Uh, but I'll, I'll actually want to, let's go to the, the Kratos thing real quick here. I'm just going to read through it because it's interesting. Products speak louder than PowerPoints. Kratos operates differently than your typical defense contractor. It is a public company that acts more like a venture back high-tech startup rather than waiting for the customer to begin program of record or issue a request for proposal. Kratos anticipates the need and gets to bending metal, shaping composites, or writing software on its own dime. We have a handful um, and a half of products that are systems that are in the infamous valley of death. We've flown them, we've demonstrated them, satellite systems, ground systems, drone systems, and we're trying to get them into programs of record. But uh, in terms of how fast they're moving, it takes 30 months from a white paper to, uh, it only took 30 months from their white paper to the Valkyrie, a 3000 mile strike unmanned drone. 
Um, and we do this all the time. We don't show up with a PowerPoint, we show up with product. And for the development of the Valkyrie, uh, where the, com the customer contributed about 10 million, we assumed the risk and contributed about 30 million. So I guess that's, you know, ultimately that's the way, you know, defense companies used to work in the, in the fifties and before, right. Even general electric, they, there's read in Kelly Orr's book that they had like this big, uh, family of systems and they would like, kind of like tailor them to whatever need actually popped up, but they were kind of like developing on their own dime in advance of the demand. And, you know, I guess there's, there's a reason to want to go back to that, but it seems structurally that the way acquisition works, it doesn't really reward you for doing that potentially. Yeah. I think so Steve Blank's point, right. Is like, you know, right now we have a lot of venture capital, like Kratos, you know, going after things for DOD uh, problems, but the DOD isn't really buying it. Or if they're buying it, they're buying like, you know, onesies and twosies, but they're not really scaling. Um, you know, I think IVAS was kind of that one that actually we were starting to scale a real commercial product. Um, now we're looking at doing it with some satellite services and things like that. But um, yeah, we really haven't put, we haven't put our money where our mouth is. And so if we don't start rewarding this behavior and actually you know, saying, oh, yep, you know what? Absolutely, you're absolutely right. You know, that's what we needed. We kind of had our head in this, you know, <laughs> in this mentality, but we need to we need to shift and, and look at these kind of solutions. And you tested it. We are going to go out and do some experimentation, develop a conops around it, see if it works for us, where it fits. Um, and then, you know, if all that works out, we're going to buy a thousand of them, you know? So, yeah, I think that's where DOD still has to go with it. Um, we need to show that that this way works and it's economically viable because if we don't buy any of the creators products, what other VC is going to invest, right? Like we'll, we'll, have, right. Shown, we'll have shown don't support it. Right. Um, but yeah, I, you know, one of the, the problems there is always like, okay, I built it ahead of the need and then the government goes so slow and then they create a program and then they telegraph exactly what those things are that they liked about what we did that now I have like General Atomics and Boeing and everyone else like in on this, right? Um, and I'm like back in the thick of it and my speed advantage didn't really help me um, or my IRAT or my, my self-funded R&D. I wonder, you know, Kratos is doing a lot of R&D, so I assume it can't be all IRAT. A lot of it's got to be self-funded, right? Because I think that's what they mean when they say 30 million what came out of their pocket. That wasn't IR&D, that was self-funded. Because if they did IRAD, their rates would be huge, right? <laughs> like, yeah, I don't think they have any. I don't think they have that many big contracts. I think they have some, some smaller R and D ones. I don't think they have any big procurement. So, yeah, that, that I don't think it's IRAD. I think that was from the VC um, piece uh, about going after kind of the Valkyrie. Some of those, or they're they're products. a public company, so it's so. just based on. I don't think I don't know if it's VC or anything. Oh, you're right. right you're right. I'm yeah. sorry. It's yeah, just it's, it's just coming out of the equity. Yeah, but. Um, yeah, let's let's move let's move on to get home here. Uh, U.S. Army delays Microsoft's 22 billion Hololens deal, so that's what you're talking about with IFAS. There looks like they're actually slow rolling it. They were going to kind of move pretty fast, but um, after some operational tests, they're going to kind of push out uh, the major production by until later in FY22. Uh, this next one is actually pretty interesting. Pratt & Whitney Gatorworks to 3D print an entire jet engine from Flight Global. Gatorworks can afford to take the risk because it's not designing or manufacturing ultra-reliable turbofan engines used for fighter jets or airlines. Instead, it is focusing on low-cost military engines such as the TJ-150, which is used to power small cruise missiles. Pratt & Whitney thinks it can consolidate TJ-150's number of parts from 400 to about half a dozen, which is crazy to be <laughs> like 400 down to half a dozen. Um, and it calculates that the process will cut the engine's cost in half. Right now, if we wanted to do an iteration, we've got the hard tooling that's about 12 months lead time. And if we can do add, if we can eliminate that lead time and print new configurations in a couple of weeks. So that's pretty huge. You know, I'm, I'm actually like, the more I'm like listening to and hearing these stories from everywhere throughout industry, you know, the more I'm kind of bullish on additive manufacturing um, and 400 down to a half dozen. Wow. What could that do for, for supply chains? Right. And, and uh, maintainability. No, I'm with you. I mean, honestly, like a, I guess it was two years ago when the air force started to look at added manufacturing seriously for, especially for sustainment. 
I, I was a little skeptical. I was like, yeah, because I, I saw the Marine Corps kind of Marine Corps kind of went ho- like full full on about it. And they were trying to produce, you know, different components, but they were like lower level components. And I really thought it would take a while before they'd be able to, you know, go after, you know, the really not the super reliable, but, you know, even to be in the turbo fan business. I thought that would be long way down the road. So yeah, we, we did like a generational leap. I feel like I'm with you. I'm super bullish on it too. Cause I joined a couple groups where I get these different clippings from the different technologies that are coming out and they, the business model is there, you know, like the open source designs and, you know, how, how, how people are building on each other's, you know, um, uh, ideas. And I mean, it just, it just seems to have taken off. So no, this is going to be, this is crazy that, that they're going to be able to produce these, um, these, 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 uh, engines for the, for the small cruise missiles. I mean, that's going to just, that's going to make, it's not just going to make small cruise missiles. It's going to make the like smaller drones and all that stuff much, much more affordable and, and hopefully, uh, hopefully more attractive to maybe, you know, DOD to take some risks on it. So yeah, yeah. you could really it's push exciting. those attributables down. I, I, I wasn't really thinking about that too. Cause like, they're going to be spending over a million dollars per engine. And if you can like cut that in half or less, then you're really kind of moving the needle on, on the attributable because a good, a good bit of that, I think like, you know, 20, 30% of that cost is just going to be that engine. Yep. Exactly. Last one we'll do here. Maxar files protest over space development agency satellite procurement. Space News SDA on August 30th issued a request for proposal for the transport layer tranche one, a mesh network of sat- small communication satellites in low Earth orbit projected to start launching in 2024. Proposals were due October 8th. Uh, the same day Maxar filed the protest, several industry sources familiar with SDA's procurement said uh, they were unaware of what might have prompted it. But they expect the bid challenge to be. Um, they expected the bid challenge because of the size and the importance of of the uh, procurement. SDA said as many as three suppliers could be selected to produce 126 satellites. SDA last year selected Lockheed and York Space Systems to produce the first 20 satellites for uh, transport layer tranche zero. So it looked like Maxar was already kind of. Um, I guess not out of the running, but they didn't, they didn't get selected in tranche zero. So, you know, it's not tranche one is definitely going to be kind of like their last, their last bid. And if they're going to go with up to three providers, you know, they're definitely going to want to be able to get to play in that. So I guess we'll see over time what happened with the protests. I believe SDA did their missile tracking um, actually get a protest. Uh, so I'm not really quite sure, but tranche zero went pretty well. I guess this is something to be expected, but hopefully it doesn't slow SDA down. They're doing pretty great things. It seems like. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, yeah. I feel the same way. I, I do think Congress, there's been different things proposed over the years. I do think um, protests need to need to have a little bit of consequences with it. So they're not frivolous because I do feel like the bar is so low. It's so easy to just, throw you know throw the card out there and you know find some reason and then you know GAOs doesn't seem to uphold very many of them and so um you know i think there should be some consequences that if it's frivolous and you lose you pay you pay some kind of legal costs or um uh, you know there's there's some there's something there so that contractors aren't just doing it just to you know just to be a sore loser or whatever you so maybe they have a maybe they'll win this one but it seems to happen too often. And yeah, I'd like to, I think some legislation on that might be, might be helpful. There's been some good ideas out there about that. Yeah. Another, well, I'll be interested to see how much, you know, they've said they've been doing like expanded, um, you know, post-decision briefs from the source selection board, but this one was like, they, they didn't even get there. It was like on the day the proposals were due there, he filed the protests. So it'd be interesting to see. What happens there? I guess like the the expanded visibility into decisions didn't won't, won't affect that. But um, yeah, I'm with you. I'm not really sure how much is, is like the protest thing. I wonder how much of it is just like the feeling of are there other opportunities coming down the pike, or is this like my one chance? And if it's like no matter what you do, if it's a one chance thing, like people are gonna kind of go kicking and screaming, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, but at the same time, you, you, you lose a lot of goodwill. I'll, I'll tell you, not that you would do anything to eliminate somebody, but man, you lose a lot of goodwill for, for somebody to try to develop a strategy that, 
gives you another opportunity or something because um, it's just so disruptive, right? Like the program office is all poised to press out and you literally are stopped to a halt. You can't do anything hardly. So yeah, it is, you know, 90 days or whatever, hundred days, hundred days. Pretty, yeah. Yeah. You're pretty much just sort of uh, just sitting there and that's, that's a shame. Well, it's like hundred days kind of at a minimum, right? Cause like someone's going to be like, I'm going to, you know, appeal that. And then, <laughs> you know, how long did the, the Jedi thing go on? Uh, but that's, oh, that's still an extreme on. case, I read that. right? That's an extreme case, but I did hear that Oracle still isn't giving up and they've gone back, even though the the, the procurement's canceled, it's, they're still fighting. It's... <laughs> uh, well, maybe the Jedi will be the program that never dies. Even dead programs never die in the Department of Defense, right? <laughs> they just come back <laughs> in new ways. Zombie programs. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's all we got time for this week. Uh, thanks for joining, Matt. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks, sir. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.